Welcome to episode 35 of the False Neutral Podcast. I'm Pete Tonchnomi, and my job is to do the intro. And with me tonight are my co-hosts, and their job is to keep me from rambling on incessantly, not making any sense and talking too much, which they failed to do last week. So I had to cut well, a bunch of stuff out of that one. <laughs> Eric, Garrett, how you guys doing? Not too bad. Yeah, I not guess bad. none of us are very good at our jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, no one pays us for this, so it doesn't That's, make any difference. Right. <laughs> the worst that could happen is people would stop listening, and frankly, that wouldn't affect us any. Yeah, not really. It's an excuse to sit and talk motorcycles once a week. Yeah, because my wife gets tired of hearing me talk to myself. <laughs> um, I was listening to the Camden Tub podcast today, and uh, Brad was saying, in the middle of it, he gets a... He says, I got a text from my wife. She's listening to one of our back episodes because I give her a hard time about not listening. <laughs> I have no expectations that my wife will ever listen to a moment of these podcasts. Yeah. yeah. So That is my, absolutely true. <laughs> my wife would have no interest in this. I, I have one clarification from last week. Uh Names of all of the BMW alternative suspensions. I've got pictures last week, but I, I forgot the name of the duo lever. So there's telelever and duo lever and their rear suspension. They have mono lever, which is just a one sided swing arm. And then they have the para lever, which is a one sided swing arm with two universal joints and a, a linkage so that the shaft effect doesn't jack up and down as you turn the throttle on and off. So. Telelever, duo lever, monolever, paralever. <laughs> <laughs> Good, I can sleep better now. Okay, we actually have some listener communication that uh, I appreciate very much. First of all, Furman16 asked on Hooniverse, So with winter coming up, will you guys start talking about snowmobiles and whatnot? Well, I think no. we already talk about whatnot, but snowmobiles, probably not. No, but my friend uh, just recently bought a FC09, and it seemed like the day he bought it, the weather just completely turned here, <laughs> and it's just started raining horribly, and... <laughs> So I always make fun of him for buying it and ask if Yamaha offers some sort of like jet ski conversion package for it where you can <laughs> put an impeller on it and a ski on the front because then maybe he could get some use out of it because until summertime, he's probably not going to be able to ride it very much here. Well, they do have those those snowmobile conversions for dirt bikes oh, right. where you put a ski exactly. on the front and a track on the back. But I think it would be really odd because you don't have any gyroscopic right. procession. There's nothing keeping I, you upright. Right. It's not like a snowmobile where you're, it just sits on a track and skis and you go around. I think those would be really hard to balance and very, very odd. Well, well, well Pete, for you, that should be pretty easy. You just swap the rear wheel for a track and you're good to go, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's take the <laughs> snowmobile turned into a road bike and turn it back into a snowmobile. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
so no, probably probably no snowmobile talk. Yeah, I, I lived in Minneapolis for two years and worked at a Yamaha dealership, so I got to ride all of the. I think it was the eighty. Five and 86 model year Yamahas uh, pretty regularly. I don't know anything about them except maybe once every year or two we go to Colorado when we rent snowmobiles in Grand Lake and go up in the Rocky Mountain National Forest and we're always on the trail rental sled lowest and cheapest uh, <laughs> Polaris 500 trail sled there is. And never, ever go off the groomed trail. So I've just told you everything I know about, about snowmobiles. So, And that's exponentially more than I know. I've never <laughs> ridden one, never really cared to ride one. So, And I've lived in Michigan for, well, Michigan and northern Indiana, close enough to the Michigan. You know, you can throw a rock and hit Michigan. Um, my... Close enough, this makes no difference my entire life. I've ridden snowmobiles less than half a dozen times, and that includes living in the Upper Peninsula for two years. <laughs> my so, goodness, up the UP is like Snowmobile City. The, what is oh, it? it the, is. The Keweenaw Peninsula, where they get 200 inches of snow every year? and Among other places, yeah. But, see, the problem is in southeast, well, when I, when I grew up on the west side of the state, it was a little different because you get all the lake effect snow off of Lake Michigan. But here on the east side of the state, we get hardly any snow and then if you want to go snowmobiling you got to go up north which is anywhere from three to six hours depending on how many other people are going up north that weekend so it's not really worth it yeah yeah so there you go we had our snowmobile discussion probably last ever first and last nanoop asks i'm following you guys only loosely no license so maybe you've touched on this topic already. Is there a 50cc vehicle out there on which a 40-year-old could roll to work in dignity? Uh, Azuma. My, li my license allows me to ride everything up to 50cc, and my commute is, if choosing the route wisely, never above 50 kph. Hey, yeah. is he Canadian, eh? He's somewhere over in Europe. Oh, I was going to say, like... I, I think he may be Scandinavian somewhere. I've oh. read his posts enough that I should know when I don't. Um, MB5? It says it could be old or recent, even electric. Here's some foggy opinion. No flashy 50cc Aprilia racer. They'd give me a would-be midlife crisis stamp. I'm not fully convinced of scooters, knees swaying and such, and the looks are usually either too retro Vespa or 90s Transformers, everything else. But I'm willing to hear you out. I kind of like Kreidler Florets, which today suffer from generations of puberty tuning. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that is. <laughs> they, there's probably nine of them in the United States, but they're what every high school kid rode in the 70s in Germany. Okay. Uh, that's a, I like that term. I'm gonna have to remember that. <laughs> it's it's it was puberty tuned. I haven't seen good looking more modern equivalents either, but I wasn't really looking. Well, we don't really have a good selection of 50 cc motorcycles that aren't scooters here. And they might have better selection overseas, but 50cc-wise, we pretty much just have scooters. So, And it all depends on your laws, where you are, Nanoop, because most United State license state licensing, the 50cc restriction is not... You need a scooter license. Uh, yeah, it's not applicable to anything that's got a gearbox and multiple manual gears and a clutch in it. It's got to be a twist-and-go CVT, and it's got to have 
most places it's a 30 or 35 mile an hour top speed or it's by horsepower and they've got like a one, one and a half or two horsepower limit on their moped legislation for the 50cc unrestricted anybody can go out and drive it law. So I have no idea what your laws are. Several people, uh, Ninja Borshin, our longtime listener, and uh, Professor Harrell, both encouraged him to think about the electric, which I would have to agree, depending on the length of your commute, uh, what do you guys think about an electric-assisted bicycle over a moped? I wouldn't look at an electric-assisted bicycle over a moped. I would look at a Zuma, if it were me, uh, a Yamaha Zuma, the 50cc variety, because they're inexpensive, you can get parts for them all day long. They're modifiable if you so wanted to do that in the future. So, and that you just fill it up and go. You don't have to charge it. You're not bound to um, a certain distance away from home. So, if it were me, I would stick to gas. But I would, I would really look at Azuma for him. Uh, one, one. This is. I have to bring this up because this is the one time that Boltaco is going to be the correct answer. But, <laughs> but Boltaco. Uh, <laughs> the new Boltaco out of Spain, which is a totally different company, but they bought the rights to the name, makes the Brinco, which is an electric all-terrain bike. They have kind of like a moped legal and then a uh, super not really quite legal version. It's kind of in that gray area between a pedal-assisted bike and an electric motorcycle. They've got some really impressive specs on their range and power, especially if you buy the R that has like a, you know, a 45 mile an hour top speed. Very, very cool vehicle. And I know there's one, I can't think of the name of it, but there's another, there's another assisted bike that's like a whole order of magnitude more powerful than that one. And either of those two would be really cool if you've got a short commute, but I don't know of anything other than scooters. That yeah. would be respectable because most of the 50cc motorcycles that I can think of, uh, well, if you're in Europe, maybe a DT50LC, which is Yamaha's 50cc water-cooled dual sport bike. I mm-hmm. don't know how, when they went out of production, but they, they were sold in the United States for, I think, one year. Gas Gas makes a really cool 50cc two-stroke supermoto bike. Now, whether that's going to be legal on a on a 50cc restricted license or not, I don't know. But they're both both very cool. Yamaha C3 scooter, which is, I think, the guts of the Zuma. Uh, it kind of looks like you're riding on a Coleman cooler, but they're yeah. actually really cool. Uh, I've ridden one, and I really enjoyed it. And, again, you can modify them and get them up to 40, 45 miles an hour very easily and still get 100 miles a gallon. So Yeah. Oh, that's like the Cushman. That's not a Cushman, huh? Yeah, it it does look a lot like you're riding a cooler. <laughs> They've got a whole lot of storage capacity in them, and they're they actually handle fairly well. They don't have so a disc front brake. That's the only thing that I it, think it's is. it's the uh, it's the Honda PC800 of the scooter world. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> no, but actually, you know, he might think about a scooter for the fact that if you're going to commute it all the time and if you're going to ride in the rain, you can stay relatively dry on a scooter because your whole frontal area is protected and you can even put a windshield on it. Whereas a motorcycle, your legs are kind of out and exposed to the weather and you're probably going to get a little bit more wet if you're going to ride in the rain. So might consider a scooter for that reason. I'm just pulling up the Yamaha Europe one just because, um, and that's, there's, uh, the air rocks 
Oh, yeah. Various versions yeah. of that. And uh, there's that. And then if you don't know if you can find them, but uh, should be relatively cheap, uh, a Honda MB5. Yeah, if they're legal, I don't know how much they cost. Uh, they're starting to appreciate in value in the United States. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, MB5 would be very cool because it's kind of cool retro styling, but it scores cool points in the fact that it looks like a motorcycle and it looks 70s retro. So, and it's yeah. a two-stroke. So. Agreed. Uh, speaking of things we were talking about the MB5 appreciating, that is our subject this week. We have some suggestions from uh, readers on bikes that we think will appreciate in the next five to ten years, but I want you guys to give me yours first. I, and I don't know about you guys, but I I was going to ignore the really obvious ones, like pre-war Harleys, uh, Indians, Vincents, Royal Enfields, anything that's already really expensive, already inaccessible, I think that's wise because there is no guarantee that some of those really expensive bikes haven't plateaued and may tank in five to 10 years. You know, yeah. uh, we're looking at things that you can pretty much guarantee you're going to make money on. And I don't think any of those really super high end stuff. I've, I've heard of some collector vehicles going off the cliff, you know. So yes, I, I would agree. We're not going to talk about obvious blue chip collector's bikes yeah so um i have several on my list but i'll just throw one out there and then you guys can decide or, or issue some of your own but mid-70s bmw r90 i would say that's already on its way up yeah well you can find them for 25 to 3500 dollars. yeah no i'm saying i'm saying that's a good call in the sense of yeah. they've bottomed out and they're on their way Oh yeah. Uh, I yeah. I think I think the the R90S is mm -hmm. already probably on too many people's radar, but yeah. I th I think there is a sweet spot where it's not the flagship bike that everybody knows, but it's most of the functionality in a slightly less uh slightly less famous model, I think is a really good place to look and I think you're absolutely right. Just the garden variety R90, I think, could be a really good investment. Yeah. No. And they, they look good. They have a really classic styling. So I think from that standpoint, they'll, they'll be um, it's a timeless at least. Design. Yeah, yeah. And, and they made plenty of them. So I think that keeping them on the road or keeping them relevant is going to be pretty easy. Not yeah. terribly obscure. Uh, in that same vein... What was on my list was some of the less sexy, uh, Gootsies of that era. Uh, yeah. not the, you know, Le Mans, Le Mans, but maybe like, uh, the, 1000, the 1000 SP mm -hmm. that had the two piece fairing on it, the T5, the 850 T5. And I think even the, the small blocks like the, uh, 650 Lario, the 500 twins, you're not going to make thousands and thousands of dollars, but I think you could make money if you found one in good condition. Yeah. I've waited it a little bit because I've got some kind of going with what you know. I've got stuff that's in my, I don't want to say in my lifetime because it's definitely all within my lifetime, but like within my buying time of motorcycles. So I've got a few used, a few older ones, and I've got a two that I've marked as future classics. Okay. So something from your list? 
All right. Um, this is the one I just wrote down because it was like just kind of came to me because I think someone's kind of is I don't know if Suzuki's kind of redoing this one a little bit with a bit of a modern take, but the original Suzuki Katana. Oh yeah. I, I think the train's already left the station on that one. Yeah? Oh, is that our Yeah, I I think you're either gonna find something that's a trashed X race bike that's gonna cost you way too much to restore, or if it's really choice, uh you're going to be fighting somebody else for it because that's, I think that, and I would also say the CBX. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a bunch of guys, you know, that don't know anything about motorcycles driving around in their SN95 Mustang. And you say, what's a cool bike to collect? I think those are the two bikes that they're going to mention right off the top of their head. So Eric, are you talking about like the early, early Katanas, like early eighties, or are you talking yeah, about yeah, yeah. the more? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. The like the 80s. 81 yeah. or 82, whatever the first year of that was. 82 seems to ring a bell. The original but Hans Muff. Bikini fairing, kind of very angular. Yeah. Um, yeah, that one. It just, I was never my favorite bike, but it's, I guess in retrospect, it, it's very, uh, of the, of the time. It's very, you know, so it kind of captures a, a moment in time, which I think makes it kind of cool, but yeah. Um, a one that's really obvious. Uh, we'll go this one from the mid nineties is the Bemota V Dewey. Yeah. Uh, well, um, they're, here's the, here's the thing with those. They're, they're not cheap to be, they were never cheap to begin with. They're a bit unloved, but because there's so few of them, there will be a collector factor to them. Yeah. Um, I don't disagree. In fact, I feel like just about anything Bemota is going to be in, in fact, on my list, I wrote, anything Bomoda. Uh, <laughs> well, just I, because, uh, well, for the name and the styling, you know, you, it's, it's, they're always going to be timeless. Now, I don't know if they're always going to be valuable, but, um, at least to some people, they will be. But, but are they undervalued? Are they going to go up in value? Yeah, I think yes. so. Okay. Yes. The, the one that I have on my list, which is the one that we described as being the only ugly mm-hmm. Bimoda is the mantra. Uh, I could yes. see that going up in value because I think they're undervalued because they are the ugly bimoda with no ground clearance. And right now that hurts them, but in another 10 years, it's going to be like an AMC Pacer or, you know, a Douglas Dragonfly, you know, something that just has weird styling that's going to be really cool once it gets past the awkwardly outdated stage. Yeah, it, it, it finds its hipster moment. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, I, I yes, definitely exactly. agree with that because, um, in in its time, I mean, like as a current model, I it's like pretty ugly. But it's one of those things, like you said, where in the future, when nobody can really tell if it was like trying to be retro or trying to be modern, I can't really tell. I think it'll be interesting, and I think people will like it for that. Although. You're right. That had uh, very little ground clearance, and it reminds me of my Buell Firebolt. I the exhaust is underneath it, and I used to wheelie it a lot, and I just completely <laughs> mutilated the muffler on it. <laughs> and I could see that happening with this. Although I don't ride that way anymore, so probably wouldn't be an issue. And I also would say that if you really wanted to get something collectible that you could ride. From all accounts, the Mantra was a pretty easy street bike to live with. You know, yeah. uh, if you weren't going out and carving the canyons with it and just wanted to cruise around on it, 
it was actually a very comfortable, very easy to use bike. So if you weren't looking for a hardcore sport bike, that may actually be an intelligent bimoda for something to ride. Yeah, I agree. Uh, talking about the katana made me think, and this wasn't on my list, but, uh, I don't know if this is already gone to the values that it's going to go to, but I always thought that the Suzuki Turbo XN85 looked how I wanted the Katana to look originally. It was a little bit smoother, less awkward lines. Uh, it wasn't the most impressive turbo power, but it was probably the best handling of the turbo bikes, and it's also the rarest. What do you guys think? Uh, so I've thought about turbo bikes and I, I left this one off of my list because of it being a little bit more obscure than some of the other ones, like the CX 500 and CX 650 and, uh, the XJ 650 were a little bit more common. And I think they'll probably hold a little bit better value just because more people knew about them. But, um, certainly any of the turbo bikes I think are going to be. Uh, good investment pieces. I, I think the probably the CX650 because it was a stronger bike. It had much better power. It was less weird as far as colors and stuff. Out of all the turbo bikes, that and the GPZ750 was the most probably successful performance wise. So I think there's probably uh, as far as the Yamaha, there's too many of them out there. Anybody yeah. who wants one can get one cheap and they're actually fairly durable. There's a lot. I mean, you can pretty much go out on Craigslist whenever you want, find one. The XN85 was so rare that I think its rarity actually makes it more desirable because if you want one, you don't have as many choices. And I think it is, in a lot of ways, that early 80s katana with a little bit more timeless look. Yeah. What do you think, Eric? I'm trying to remember uh, my friend Jamie. He, he's the guy with the with the two Aprilias, and he's a pack rat. He's got a bunch of stuff kind of squirreled away in the back of his garage. And he either has or had, I want to say the 500, the the CX 500 Honda. I think I don't know. It's been a while. Uh, he may not have that anymore. Uh, but the one thing I remember from a, it was a pain in the ass to get running right. Once it ran right, it was okay. But because it's a blow-through carburetor setup, it's they're they're a bit they're a bit funny. Um, yeah, a, a blow-through, especially if it's not well sealed. Yes. then you'll get all kinds of problems with um, it. So, so that would be that would be one where, and, and the problem is, is you that that feels like it's one that needs to be ridden to stay fresh. Um, where if you just rode it occasionally that you would end up having a lot more problems with it. Yeah. So. Okay, what else you got? Um, It's hard to say whether or not this is even relevant, and because it is really expensive. The Kawasaki, because we're talking about turbo motorcycles, a uh, supercharged motorcycle, the Kawasaki H2. I, I had the H2R on my list. Okay. As a modern, as a modern bike that's a future collectible. Well, I, I think that the it is a limited run, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So well, they've just came out with a new carbon edition for 2017. Yeah. So it's it's really expensive. So it's hard to say if it'll ever be worth more than you're going to 
been to buy one. Um, but it's, you know, it is a pretty interesting motorcycle and, um, ridiculously expensive or, uh, powerful, at least for the H2R. Yeah. 300 and some odd horsepower. I think that would have to be at the far end of your 10 years though. Cause there's a lot of, I I think that got tucked away in collections right out of the gate. Yeah. That, um, speaking of that, though, there's uh, one on Craigslist. Well, not H2R, but just H2. There is one on Craigslist uh, locally around me, and uh, which I thought was kind of interesting because I feel like you either bought them and, and stashed them away or, or bought them. I, I just didn't assume I would find one on Craigslist so quickly, but there was one. Um, but I think it's something that if you kept for a long time, you could probably do well on. But it's not going to be any... Uh, and and yeah. anywhere in the near future, uh, kind of in that same category of ridiculously expensive things you can buy new now. And I and I, again, I'm going to go back and forth on this. Maybe this is going to be the Orange County chopper of this decade, but the Horex VR6, the V6 Horex that is made in extremely limited quantities over in Germany, and they're uh, they're they're like Buell. They they have to be reorganized and saved by somebody every six months or a year. But uh, it is a really impressive motorcycle. I'm not sure that I'm familiar with that motorcycle. Uh, it's it's a very narrow angle V-twin similar to the uh, the Volkswagen narrow oh, angle Oh, like a V-twin. W. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know what they are, $50,000 bikes. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, Holy smokes. They're cool bikes. They're everybody. I've read tests of them that say it's one amazing engine. It's not the most powerful thing out there, but it's cool. Seems like it would sound weird. I wonder what the power delivery is probably big torque, low RPM, big torque kind of. From from what I'm going off my memory here, it it's not mind blowing power. You know, it's it's not the most powerful thing out there, but it's from idle to redline. It's just the flattest torque curve that wherever you want it, there's power. And it's extremely so, smooth. So here we go. Uh, Cycle World uh, in their article. The bike weighs 550 dry. Um, so it's not light. She a big girl. Three, three, uh, three valve engine, 1.2 liter, 15 degree V6. So yeah, that's very much the uh, VR, Volkswagen VR6 model because that also mm-hmm. was a 15 degree V6. Uh, 126 horsepower at 8,500 RPM, 88 and a half foot pounds of torque at 7,000. Which the torque isn't as much as you would think for yeah, 1.2 liters. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a it's a little well maybe because it's a six cylinder, but yeah, uh, yeah. You're either thinking it's going to wind because it's a six cylinder and small pistons, it would wind high, or that they would yeah. tune it for more, much more in the in the in the torque department. So it's interesting. Yeah, whether that would actually be something that's going to be desirable. 10 years from now, I have no idea, but it's one that came to my mind. So I, it was on my list with a yeah. question mark after it. Hey, I'll throw my other stupid, stupid money now, stupid money in the future bike. And I, and I look at this sort of like I look at the uh, Honda NR 750. And, and the reason I don't have the NR 750 on my list is it's already priced out of the, out of reach. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> of course, this is priced out of reach to start with. And that's the, um, uh, Honda RC two thirteen V street bike. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's one hundred and thirty thousand dollars to start, but you basically have a true street legal 
MotoGP bike. And sorry, I'm going to flip back into something because I just realized the one that was, I think it was like $65,000 when it came out in 2007-ish, and I've seen them trading for $35,40 recently, is the um, Ducati, I want to say it was the Desmo Sedici, right? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. So that one, kind of in that same vein, it's almost a MotoGP bike, street legal MotoGP bike. And that one definitely will be collectible, A, because it's a Ducati, short run Ducati, and uh, because of the engine in it as as much as anything else. But um, yeah, so that would be a couple Um, others that would be, you know, kind of newer bikes, but definitely. I I do agree with both of those. Um, And even the Honda, yeah, it is ridiculously expensive, but... It is one of those, like, that's just so, it's such a narrow production um, and it's such such an incredible bike that there's always going to be collectors that are going to want to buy those. It's kind of like a GT40 or, I mean, a Ford GT. I feel like they're just, they they released them for a certain price, but they've always kind of gone up and I think they kind of always will. Um, And I think this is like the Ford GT of motorcycles, the RC213B. And, and just to put it in perspective, if you wanted to lease a real RC213V, that's like $2 million a year to lease it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you wanted to go racing, they, Honda won't let you keep it. That's, you got to give it back. Yeah. So the fact that for, you know, slout, you know, cut a, a zero off of it and, uh, and you get to keep it. Okay. You know, it's not a quite a MotoGP bike, but it's probably 85% there. So. Sure. Well, speaking of RCs, but further down back on Earth, the RC51 SP2. Okay. Um, they're already, I don't, they might even be topped out right now. People, I think, kind of recognize them as classics now. And they are relatively expensive to get if you want a nice one. Um, but I think there's still a little bit of room for them to increase in value if they're kept in really nice shape, particularly the SP2s, the later ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that would probably be a good buy. If nothing else, you'll always um, retain your investment on it. Those always, even even when they were new, they always really, unlike most sport bikes, they actually held their value. Yeah. Even even newer. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's a that's a good one. Uh, I did some price digging just to back up. The Horax VR6 is much less than I thought it was. Uh, it's Good not sold in the United States, but it's 20,000 euros or 27.5 in American money. That's, uh, a whole lot more reasonable than I thought it was. I still don't know if you'd make your money back or not. So, yeah. Well, anyways, enough on that. Uh, getting back to the Honda RCs, uh, I want to go to one of our readers, Pork Rind, said, NC35, which is the uh, RVF 400, wasn't sold in the United States, but it was the junior version of the RC45, similar to how the NC30 was the 400cc version of the RC30. And out of those four bikes, I think he nailed it. I think that's probably the one that's undervalued and not on people's radar right now that will go high. I, yeah, well, if, sure. if you want one of those, just go to the Bay Area and uh, either get on the BARF list or go to the uh, uh, Bay Area Riders Forum or the uh, what's the road race group for uh, for the Bay Area, whatever that is. If you want one, just go there because 
95% of the ones that are in the U.S. are probably being raced in that series or being ridden on the street in the Bay Area by the, by the rest of them. So yeah. um, if you want one, there's there's where you go buy one. Interesting. So I like it. Yeah, that's a good one. I've actually had the RC30 on my list, even though that it's always been expensive. It, it's I don't know that there's value in there, but you're never going to lose money on it. Yeah. And it is one of the most beautifully designed modern motorcycles. Yeah. I've got one on my list that's pretty obvious, and they're already getting pricey, but I think they'll go a lot higher, and that is the RZ350 Kenny Roberts Edition. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're already getting... I, I don't think they've topped out. I think you would make money in five or ten years on them. Yeah, I agree with you. They they haven't yet topped out. And you could probably say that for any RZ350, it'll be valuable. But the Kenny Roberts, you can find them pretty easy. Oh, yeah. And, going and for now about six, seven thousand for one now? at this point. Less than that. Really? Yeah. I bet you would find a really, really nice one for six or seven. I think that you could get a pretty decent one for 4500 okay. And it probably depends on where you are, but that seems to be the price that they go for over here. Um, and the neat thing about those motorcycles is the engines themselves were unchanged and they used them for so long. As you guys know, I mean, you could you can build it into a 421 or even bigger than that if you wanted to, but you can get engine parts for those super cheap right. and super easy. So they're going to be a great motorcycle to keep on the road for a long time. And you can always get parts from Canada because they sold them as street bikes in Canada into the late 80s and maybe even to the early 90s. Yeah, yeah. It, would Most... have to, it would have to be the U.S. spec one, which is why I said the Kenny Roberts yeah. signature yeah, edition, yeah. because other places in the world, they're a dime a dozen, but yep. it's very unique here. Yeah. Yep. And a lot of the critical components that you need for that um, engine, you can still get brand new from Yamaha. Too. Right. So when that's a good thing about Yamaha, and I'll say that just about all models as a whole, um, is their parts availability, especially new from the factory, you they retain a, a lot of stuff for a long time. So you just Yamaha in general, you can um, keep motorcycles going for quite a long time. And as we talked about before, they're very good about using robbing their own parts bin for new bikes. So yes. a lot of times older stuff stays in production because they've reused it on five other newer bikes. Yeah, mm -hmm. precisely. Uh, um, and then it, it's also really obvious, but it goes along with that. Um, RD 350s and RD 400s, um, they're, they're, they're valuable now, but I still think that they'll continue to climb in value for some I, time to come. And you can still find them. I think that the crucial issue with those is going to be how original they are. Yeah. Stock is going to be better because mm -hmm. so many of them got modified mm -hmm. and... Uh, hopped up or ratted out that if you've got one that's really in very original condition, and I think the one that I would probably throw in there on top of the whole heap, as far as the air-cooled RDs, is the RD400 Daytona. Daytona Special, yep. because everybody took those stinking butterfly valves off the exhaust and put chambers on them. Yeah. And if you've got one with really nice chrome pipes and the butterflies, you've got something really special. And yeah, it hasn't if been you're thrown truly, down the thrown down the street and still has a nice original paint without dings and scratches in it, I think yeah, that could be if, ridiculously expensive to the right buyer. If you're truly looking for an investment bike, then yeah, definitely find a Kenny Roberts RZ or a Daytona RD 400. 
but if you want something that's going to retain its value and you can still ride, probably just buy a regular RZ or an RD350. But, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, another bike that I think will be more and more expensive if it's in really good, fully original shape is uh, Ironhead Sportsters. I yeah. think truly showroom correct the early, AMF early one? 70s yeah AMF era sportsters that don't have a replacement air cleaner and don't have shotgun you know unmuffled duels on it and don't have ape hangers and have the original paint job and the original seat all that kind of stuff i think those could become not super, super expensive, but be able to ride it and baby it and get your money back later with a little bit of uh, oomph over inflation. Yeah, I don't disagree. Eric, you'll probably, and do you have another comment about the Sportster? Because I was going to change gears here. No, no, I was actually just trying to think of any Harley that, because they've pumped out so many over the last 25 to 30 years, would also be collectible on Harley, and there's really nothing. I mean, the anniversary editions will always have some kind of extra, little extra, but um, yeah, anyway, sorry. I, I will tell you one thing that I have been watching and I've noticed go up in value over the last three to five years is, again, original, unmodified, first-year soft tails. The original, not the Springer, not the Heritage, not the super-wide, fat, cowboy whatever but the i think it was 83 maybe Uh, anyways i those in original shape are getting very rare and harley people are noticing and they're scooping them up yeah um so probably one of the last ones on my list that i even feel like is worth mentioning uh ducati 916. Uh, so I have that as the slash to another one, but yes. Yeah, I figured you'd probably have this one on your list. Um, I don't really know where they're at in value right now. I don't, I don't think that they've really gotten that expensive, but I feel like this is probably one that you can, um, have as a good investment piece. This is probably going to be a valuable Ducati at some point. Um, but it's, one that you can still get pretty inexpensively now. The, the, well, a, yeah, a Ducati B racing heritage, multiple world Superbike titles and, and C it had that iconic design that was yeah. on every kid's wall growing up in the exactly. early and mid nineties. I mean, that's just an unbelievable design and, and <laughs> took Ducati a while to figure out what the next, the next thing would be yeah. they got stuck on that for a little little while, but um, yeah, and well, some I mean, of that design and, language. But yeah, it's um, it's it's yeah. I don't think that they really made a better looking Ducati than this until honestly, this is probably kind of controversial, but until the Panigale, yeah. I don't think I I really didn't like the nine nine nines. No, ten ninety eights were okay, um, but like I really like the Panigale. Panigale now, but I don't think that they really did anything better than this. I, I think 916 is one of those really obvious answers, probably up there with the Katana. Yeah, um, I figured. 
but I think you probably will make money on it if you can not overspend on it now. I think yeah. there, mm-hmm. there's right now, I think there's a pretty good wide range of values. People really haven't decided what they're worth. Uh, and that, uh, Harp Sahada, who has written to us more than once on our Facebook page, did mention that one and also mentioned the 996. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was the evolution of the 916. So, right. Because yeah, there was the 916, 955, and then the 996. Yeah. And I think the 916 is the more iconic one that if somebody is a Ducati collector that wants to finish off his collection, that's the one he's really going to want out of those three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he also mentioned uh air cooled GSXR seven fifty, you know, the air the air and oil cooled GSXR seven fifties, first gen fireblade and R one. Yeah. I'm not sure you're gonna make money on those. I I have the first gen R one on my list in nineteen ninety eight. Well, not even first gen, first year R one. Um other than that, I don't know if it really is relevant. But the first year R1, I think, was a big step forward for uh, Japanese mm-hmm. sport bikes. And so I think that that's probably one where if you had a really nice example, it's going to be worth money. But the problem with those is they made so damn many of them that you would have to have a really, really perfect example for it to be a good investment piece. Yeah, he, he said uh, one caveat is having the original fairings in good condition, nearly impossible yeah. to find these days since so many were tossed down the road. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's for sure. Um, but, for the yeah. air cooled air cooled GSXRs, I would say yes if it's like an eighty six, like first eighty five, eighty six, and then there was the double R version, which was a bit rare with flat slide carbs and some other. I mean, it was basically a homologation special kind of bike, and right. and there were under a thousand of those made. I think I think even maybe under five hundred. Um, so if you can come across one of those, yes, because, you know, a racing heritage, b low production and C kind of even first early GSXR air and oil cooled. So, yeah. Uh, one that was on my list that's kind of obscure, but, uh, I, th- I think it would still be a good investment is the Kawasaki Z1 classic from 1980. It was the very first fuel injected bike had really cool chrome tank. Uh, it, it was basically the same thing as the 76 KZ 900 LTD, which was the very first factory custom. Mm-hmm. By the time they got to 1980, it became the KZ 1000, but it was still called the Z1 Classic, even though the regular bike had gone on to be the KZ 1000. And this was their first experiment with fuel injection prior to the GPZ 1100, which was their first fuel-injected, mass-produced sport bike. So uh, this was made in a limited quality, so it's kind of got the throwback name, the chrome tank, kind of the historical interest of being the first fuel-injected bike. I've looked at some of the prices lately, and they're not outrageous. They're probably going... For less than a, a a nice clean original seventy three Z one, so you know they're they're still I think a little bit of a bargain classic. They'll never be worth what the original root beer and orange Z one will be worth, mm-hmm. but I think they will go up in proportion with that bike. Yeah, yeah, um, that's a good pick. 
So I just I thought of one that wasn't on my list, and I was just as I'm racking my head before I get to my last pick of all right, I'm 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 falling into the category of oh look look at all these sport bikes I have. What's what's something that's not a sport bike uh, that's sort of in that in the era we're talking about? And this one I don't know. I'm way out of way out of my uh, comfort zone on this one. But what about first year or two like eighty eighty one eighty two BMW R eighty GS? Oh, yeah. as sort or as sort of the you know the kind of started the whole revolution thing or the whole. Unfortunately, I think the fir- the very first year R80 GSs are already getting really snapped up. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen some some what I thought were really silly prices on some that had serious you know rusted out exhaust headers on them and stuff, and people were still getting into bidding wars on eBay, paying twice what I thought it would go for. So whether they're going to go up or not, I don't know. They they seem to be. Uh, on the launch pad, engines have ignited. Whether we know how high they're going to go, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, that, I, I would agree with you, except that I don't know what the top end on them is. But they're definitely mm-hmm. going up. Yeah. Uh, kind of from that same era, uh, what do you guys think about the CB1100F? The, you know, it, they didn't make it, what, they, it was like a two-year model. Uh, it had the cool little fairing on it. Um, they're not ridiculously priced right now. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel on this one, kind of like you did with the BMW, I don't know where they're going to go. And so it's kind of hard to judge. I, I don't know what you can buy them for right now, but I think that you won't lose money on it for sure. Um this might be one of those models where you could buy it, ride it, and kind of always maintain your investment. I don't know if it's going to be worth a bunch of money. No, I don't think it'll ever be, you know, like a 916 or yeah, or even right. the Z1 Classic, I think, would be worth more. But and Would yeah. you say, sorry, in that in that era, too, um, just com- comes to mind, uh, and we've talked about them before in previous shows, but have the, uh, have the 750 Water Buffaloes sort of, They've already kind of topped out of what they'll probably be worth. Yeah, for I, sure. I, I think so. I think they're, yeah. they're if, they've, they've if already not, plateaued. Yeah, yeah if, if not, um, I think they're probably even kind of overvalued right now, and I think people have figured that out. They've yeah. they've got a hipster tax on them right now. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I thought as much, but I was just as I'm racking my brain for something else in here. So um, the last one I have on my list goes with sort of Garrett's choice, but it goes a little earlier than that at the previous generation. And that's the uh, 851 Ducati as just the, that is the bike that really launched Ducati into the modern era. Um, you know, that was late eighties. Um, what launched a Midworld Superbike? what set them off is, Hey, we're no longer cute little Italian, well, they still were cute little Italian company at that point, but um, <laughs> that they were being serious about stuff and uh, um, taking off again. And, and again, it was maybe it wasn't as pretty as the 916 because a few things were, but it it had some very simple lines. It was sort of flat-sided, but it still was kind of elegant in its own way. And, yeah, And I think that it is probably more undervalued. I think the 916 already has a whole lot of people who did have it on a poster on their wall and already know they want one. Uh, in, in modern terms, it's not a good bike. In, in terms of, you yeah. know, late eighties, yes, it was, it was good, but it was, it didn't, it had awesome torque. It sounds glorious. 
Um, not super powerful. It but hard to ride. Like, hard to ride fast. Yeah, well, it wasn't light. It had no steering lock to it. Um, a friend of mine in college had one, and I and I got to ride it a few times. It was great to ride as long as you were at speed on a winding road, on a tight road or in stop-and-go traffic. Not a lot of fun, but on the right roads, that thing was a ton of fun. Yeah. And real quick, I want to mention the real number six. Another reader had a lot of what we've talked about on his list, the R80GS, the Ducati 916. He mentioned the original first-generation Honda Hurricanes, and I would have to say they'd have to be perfect because there's so many of them, and they, they're like cockroaches. Mm-hmm. They're, they last forever, so anybody who wants one can find one cheap. But he also mentioned one that I think is just probably... A really good bet, and that's the BMW HP2s, the Sport and the Enduro. Mm. Those are—I yeah. know they're already really expensive, but they've think- actually the 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 boxer ones have actually come down in price a decent amount because they were like twenty six thousand dollars new, uh, and I think you can get them for under eighteen, fifteen to eighteen now. I think if you look, and, and so, I, but yes, and I they, think will, they will they will go up. Yeah, they'll, yeah, they'll, they'll go, go back up. Yeah, because they were pretty rare bikes. Okay. Do you guys have anything else first before I do my big grand finale? No, I'm okay. I'm good. The two that are my these these are my secret tips that I'm going to suggest as sure fire. <laughs> you know the guy at the racetrack who leans over and goes, "Eddie's bonnet in race two. <laughs> you will make money on these." First no. one is the Triumph Bonneville 750 Electro, the electric start standard Bonnie. 1983, they had the TSX, which is already obscenely expensive. They only made, like, I think, 1,500 of them. They had the TSS, which was the eight valve with the Westlake head on it that uh, kind of got all of the press that year and is already obscenely expensive. But they also made a standard two-valve per cylinder Bonneville with electric start. One of the color combinations was an absolutely fantastically gorgeous orange and white, or orange and black fade, rather, which is just spectacular. And you can pick them up for under six grand in really nice condition. Now, there are people asking silly money for them, but if you know where to look, you can still get one as a bargain. It is the last of Meriden Bonnies, and I think that is, if you can find one, put it in a hermetic bubble for 10 years, you're going to double your money. Mm. Uh, the other one is the 1966 Harley 175 Bobcat. They only made that model one year. It had very unique ABS bodywork on it, which depending on who you ask, you're going to hear it described with, it was quirky. It was kooky looking. Some people may use terms like, hideously ugly um but it but don't listen to them it's gonna be valuable it it did have really really weird bodywork on it and it was the last year of the old three-speed harley hummer based you know before they went to importing the italian airmachis this Mm -hmm. is the last of the legacy uh harley lightweights so there you have it last year only year that they had the Bobcat, only year they had the weird bodywork. Truly one of the oldest technology bikes you could buy in 1966. And they are severely undervalued because nobody liked them because they had 
the non-classic bodywork on them. Everybody wanted a Hummer that looked like a Hummer. So those are my two big picks. I like it. That's good. We probably should wrap up. Well, find us on Twitter at the false neutral and Facebook, right, Eric? Yep. Facebook.com slash the false neutral. And I want to thank yeah. the real number six, Harps Sahada, Furman 16, uh, Nanoop, all for participating via our Hooniverse posts and Facebook. So thank you to you guys. And yeah, uh, that don't, is awesome. And, don't forget, uh, and don't forget to go back to uh, Hooniverse when this posts and let us know what you think, whether you think we're offer rockers, if you think we nailed it, or or the, oh, come on, how could you be so stupid? How could you forget? Insert your model here. Yep. <laughs> yes. And, of course, uh, all of the bikes that we talk about, you can look at a photo of them at the Hooniverse on our Tuesday post. Yes. Yep. Don't okay. forget all of our uh, Hooniverse compa- compatriots and their podcast, Hooniverse, DFL, Camden Tub, us. Subscribe, like, share, rate us on iTunes. And I and I will be a guest next week on uh, Camden Tub. So, but listen, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> I, I bugged them a couple weeks ago to be a guest on there. They said they'd get back to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk you up. Well, I think, I, think Eric, would, I would yeah. love I would love to hear you and Brad argue about Porsches because I think you would have very different views. Uh, Brad and I agree on a lot of stuff and we disagree on a lot of stuff so yeah it could be a good discussion I want to be like Jerry Springer and get you guys to yell at each other you know (laughs) okay thank you guys and we'll see you all next week later thanks see ya